Hi, this is Sean Fensky, editor of MPO Magazine, and I'm here with another episode of Mike on MedTech on the MedTech Matters channel. Uh, we're going to be talking today about uh, biomaterials uh, with regard to the FDA and, and an approval pathway for them. Um, as always, I'm here with uh, Vascular Sciences President Mike Drews, who's uh, our go-to for you know, of course, all things regulatory, but just uh, getting some some expert insights into the uh, med tech industry. Uh, so, Mike, welcome and and uh, happy New Year, happy 2018. Thank you, Sean. Happy New Year to you and your audience as well. So let's let's get right into it. I mean, we're discussing today biomaterials, um, and we're talking about the approval process. Can a can a biomaterial currently be approved by the FDA? That's a terrific question, Sean, and in the interest of full disclosure, I'd just like to remind your audience that in addition to my background in biomedical engineering, that's what my PhD is in, I do happen to be a subject matter expert for the FDA on biomaterials. So this is uh, one of many areas that's near and dear to my heart, so to speak. Um, the short answer to your question is no. A, uh, a biomaterial is not approved by the FDA. Um, typically what happens is a medical device is either cleared or approved by the FDA. If that device uses a material that is new or novel, then as part of that clearance or approval process, the material is also um, looked at, so to speak. But biomaterials in and of themselves are not approved, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk uh, about this topic, because I think in many ways it is really holding us back as an industry. So if, if, a, if let's say the FDA did put into place a, uh, an approval pathway for biomaterials, and then this information as, as a result was made public, um, do you think it would definitely increase the the amount of uh, various materials, the amount of these biomaterials that would be used in, in medical devices? Uh, again, terrific question, Sean. I think the short answer is absolutely yes. Consider the, uh, the following not-so-hypothetical scenario. So a medical device manufacturer has a choice. They're developing a new medical device. They can either make that device out of an existing material, what I call a bio-friendly, uh, I'm sorry, what I call a um, FDA-friendly material. And by the way, FDA-friendly is nothing more than code speak for, meaning that the material does have a track record with the FDA. And when it comes to the regulatory obligation, all we have to do is essentially provide a pointer to the history of that material when we're done. So that's option number one. The device company can use an existing material. Option number two, the device company can choose to use a new material, a material that does not have a history of being used in medical devices or in biological applications. It does not have a history of being used with the FDA. So given those two uh, choices, a company developing a new device with an existing material or a company developing a new device using a new material, Sean, which do you think the medical device company is going to choose probably 99 times out of 100 or maybe even more? Oh, def definitely the least path of resistance. The path of least resistance, absolutely correct. They're going to choose to make the device out of an existing material. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, assuming that the existing material meets your needs. 
But here's the problem. This is another one of these um, uh, uh, areas where we have created incentives for companies to continue to use technologies that we already have, i.e. existing materials, and disincentives for companies to truly produce something that's new or novel. Think about it another way. We have thousands and thousands of medical device companies that are developing new medical devices, but how many companies are out there developing new and novel biomaterials? Very, very, very few of them. You can count them probably on a couple of hands. And in my opinion, as a professional biomedical engineer and as a former R&D engineer myself, that is really holding us back. And so I think um, there are a number of ways that we can encourage uh, um, new technologies and new materials. One step in that direction is having a conversation like this of exploring what a uh, biomaterial pathway to approval might look like. So, all right, let's 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 take it. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of a semantic argument. Uh, you have a you know you have drugs, and drugs are of course approved. Drugs are a you know, a, a type of biomaterial, shouldn't that, you know, play a part in why biomaterials would be approved by the FDA? That's actually a, a very interesting observation, Sean. That is, in fact, uh, the regulatory logic in part that could support the, um, uh, the, the reasoning for a biomaterial approval pathway. You're exactly right. Drugs are, uh, are, are approved. But materials are not. So not to get into semantics, but what's the difference between a drug versus a material, especially if you're talking about materials that go into the body, for example, uh, a permanent implant, and especially if you get into, never mind just the biostable materials that we've been using for a very long time, like many of the metals, like uh, many of the polymers and so on, but when you get into the area of bioabsorbable or bioresorbable materials, where a um, where the material breaks down in the body, not just mechanically but also chemically, now you're getting suspiciously close to the bailiwick of of drugs of cedar, something that uh, historically medical device companies really have wanted to stay away from for a, for a very long time. All right, so. Um, so that that addresses uh, a couple of the uh, the opportunities for, or I should say, reasons for a for a pathway. Uh, you know, what are some other uh, you know reasons for for setting this up? I mean, obviously, getting getting more materials into the mix, um, you know, creating more of a a, a range of of FDA friendly materials. Are there additional advantages that can be argued for, you know, for for this decision? Well, I think there are many potential advantages. And, again, this is reason why we need more people, not just you and I, but people in this industry having this kind of a discussion, talking about the advantages and disadvantages, talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly, so to speak. So let me come back to that scenario that I posed to you a moment ago, a device company uh, making a new device out of an existing material versus a device company making a new device out of a new material. If we had the opportunity to have an, a material approved or cleared by the FDA, and in a moment we could talk about what that actually might look like, um, then it will be easier for the company to develop a new device out of that new 
material because either they or perhaps somebody else, maybe a material supplier, for example, has already taken that material through the FDA clearance or approval process, and therefore, when the company is is, uh, is developing their new device, they just have to do the testing, the validation and verification and so on on the actual design of the device and the functionality of the device. But when it comes to the materials, including uh, biocompatibility, um, it becomes just sort of a pointer to the history of the material, kind of like what we have right now. But what we're talking about is making it a little bit more formal so that it makes it a little bit easier for companies in order to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that uh, that clarifies it pretty well. Um, and actually, you just touched on something that, that I was going to uh, ask about anyway, um, so I'm glad you mentioned it, and that is the material supplier. I mean, you know, we're accustomed to a, to a submission uh, pathway where the, the medical device manufacturer is submitting a product to the FDA, and like you said, if there is a new material uh, used in that, it is evaluated along with the device. Having a separate biomaterials pathway brings in a new player, which is that materials manufacturer, and having them directly submit, you know, I mean, these companies have their own R&D labs. They have their own materials experts, probably more so than any, you know, or I should say most medical device manufacturers. You know, you almost can see a, a, a competitive advantage being uh, achieved with these these materials manufacturers submitting new uh, uh, bio-friendly uh, and, and, as a result, FDA-friendly materials directly to then advertise that material to device manufacturers. I mean, that, that kind of makes a very interesting situation in and of itself. I think you're right, Sean. I think potentially it does shift some of the uh, burden, if you will, some of the workload to the uh, uh, material supplier if they choose to actually do that. Of course, they would have no obligation to do that. But if they uh, were to develop a new material or even their own proprietary version of an existing material, because oftentimes we use material names, for example, polyurethane, in a very generic, almost ubiquitous sense. But there are hundreds, perhaps thousands, of different versions of polyurethane with different uh, characteristics, with different um, leachable and extractable profiles, with different cross-linkers, and so on. And so this increases the burden on the medical device manufacturer because they also have to do that testing or have somebody do that testing for them on that particular formulation of that particular polyurethane. If, on the other hand, the material supplier decided to take that material through the FDA and get some sort of a clearance or approval on it, they can then advertise it to the manufacturer. And from a business perspective, Sean, it would seem to me that they could greatly increase the um, uh, the cost of that material to the medical device manufacturer because they can say, hey, we've already gotten this through the FDA for you. You don't have to do that again. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, you can just simply, uh, you know, point to to our uh, approval and, and be done with it. Um, but there are also, on the other hand, product liability potential consequences as well. At the end of the day, I want to make crystal clear here, it does not shift the ultimate responsibility um, of the, in terms of liability. In other words, as I like to describe it, whatever company's name is at the top of the label. They're the ones that are ultimately responsible. And if there's a problem, 
the, the medical device manufacturer is going to be the first one to get sued. Right, and I'm sure that's something they're they're very well aware of uh, and, and always uh, and always uh, uh, concerned with. Um, so now to 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 be fair, uh, you know, we've we've addressed a lot of the benefits, a lot of the potential advantages to implementing this this uh, pathway. You know, for the for the for the other side of the of the coin, what would be you know a disadvantage or what might be the downside to putting this uh, approval pathway into place? So it's a good question, Sean. I think there are some potential uh, downsides, but I think these are all solvable problems. Uh, one is it will probably require releasing some technical, maybe even proprietary information into the public domain, although I think that's a solvable problem. We do that, for example, with submissions. As you know, once a 510K or a PMA goes through, uh, any company through the Freedom of Information Act request um, process can get a copy of that submission. Before it's released to them, however, some of the more proprietary information is, is grayed out. So I think that's you know something that we can handle here. Um, probably the biggest concern that I have is that we have to make sure that we create this pathway, that we design this material pathway very carefully. Um, I see it happen many times as a subject matter expert for the FDA that people make assumptions about materials and especially about biocompatibility that have absolutely no basis in biology or engineering. For example, it amazes me how many people think that once a material is used in any one place in the body, it's okay to use it in every other place in the body. I had uh, a perfect example. I was working with a company just this past year before they uh, asked me to come in and help. They took this particular device to the FDA. It was made out of a what I call a bio, uh, I'm sorry, what I call an FDA-friendly material, meaning that the material had history of being used in that bot in the body, but it was being used in a subcutaneous uh, application under the under the skin. And now this company was wanting to use that same material in a blood contact indication in a in a blood vessel. And the FDA came back and said, you need to do a whole bunch of additional biocompatibility testing. And the company was genuinely surprised. And I said, with all due respect, are you an idiot? I mean, do you really need a PhD in biomedical engineering or immunology to understand that, gee, maybe the patient's body or specifically their immune system is going to react differently to a material that's implanted under the skin versus a material that's in contact with the blood? So... We really have to put, uh, you know, be careful how we set this pathway up to avoid scenarios like that. But nonetheless, I strongly believe that these are all very solvable problems. If, as you and I have talked about before, Sean, we get we begin with the biology and the engineering first, and then we let the regulatory follow. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen very often. What happens more is 
people begin with the regulatory first, and that has disaster written all over it in every language. As I think I've shared with you before, Sean, you know, I have a strong medical background. I, I used to teach medical school back in the day. Um, there's a common adage, the surgery went perfectly, but the patient died anyway. Well, the regulatory equivalent of that is we followed the regulation perfectly, but the patient died anyway. Unfortunately, these things happen more often than some people would like to think. And uh, I think the solution is not to create more regulation, but the solution is to get people to think and to begin with the biology and engineering first. Yeah, and I think uh, I think your your scenario of uh, you know the difference you know both both of those scenarios where it was subcutaneous or uh, blood contact you know would would likely be deemed implantable, but obviously very different scenarios. Should you have materials manufacturers submitting biomaterials to the FDA, which could be a great thing, in their uh, promotion of that product once it were to pass they need to be very careful in how they promote it as, say, an implantable material or, you know, it needs to be specifically this is an implantable material for blood contact, this is subcutaneous, you know, et cetera, et cetera, very specific on their uh, promotion of it, um, you know, Otherwise, uh, they'll, they'll find themselves uh, possibly in a little uh, trouble with the FDA, which is not something you would want with, you know, a program like this right out the door. That's correct. And not only would they be in trouble with the FDA, but more importantly, they would be potentially in trouble with patients. Because, if, again, if we don't begin with the biology and the engineering first, then, you know, we have to, we have to reap the consequences. But I do think, as I said a moment ago, these are all solvable problems. I would have absolutely no problem putting some caveats on the approval of the material, for example. This material has been tested in skin contact applications, or this material has been con has been tested in uh, blood contact indications, or in the respiratory tract, or in the GI tract, or whatever. Um, and even putting some disclaimers on there, this material has not been uh, evaluated in these other areas, or something like that. You know, we do this with other medical devices, Sean, and in the drug world, we do it all the time. You know, this drug has not been tested in these particular kinds of patients. This drug has not been tested in pregnant women, you know, what have you. These are solvable problems, but nonetheless, um, I think it is worthy of at least having a, a, a discussion as to would the uh, advantages of setting up some sort of approval process for a new biomaterial outweigh the disadvantages. In my opinion, I think they probably would, but we need to have that discussion. All right, great. Well, we're having that discussion. You know, is this is this something that's on the FDA's radar? Is this on their docket of, you know, things to address in 2018, 2019, sometime in the future? Or is this just kind of high in the sky, Mike and Sean having a conversation, maybe some other people out there are also kind of thinking about it. But is this, you know, is this real or is this is this coming? Is it, you know, just hypothetical? Well, it's a good question, Sean. Although I work as a consultant for the FDA, let me be crystal clear, I certainly do not speak for the agency. I can tell you that uh, anecdotally we have had some conversations over the years about this uh, unofficially, uh, but as far as I know, officially it is not on FDA's radar for, uh, for, for implementing this anytime in the, in the near future. But that begs the question, 
why do we as an industry need the FDA to lead us like sheep? I think this is a, a wonderful opportunity for the industry to come together to have these conversations, to put together a proposed plan, if we think that this is a good thing to do, to create sort of an outline of what this approval pathway might look like, the advantages and disadvantages, and then we take it to the FDA and say, look, this isn't the benefit of all of our interests. Uh, let's sit down and have a discussion on, uh, on, on uh, you know, how we can implement such thing. I think right now, given that we're now into 2018, we also have some additional um, winds blowing in our direction. One of them is that there is a new sheriff in town. There is a new FDA commissioner, um, Scott Gottlieb, who I have a lot of respect for. He and I agree on a number of things. Um, and he is a little more, mm, shall we say, industry-friendly, so to speak. Uh, compared to some of the, the past FDA commissioners. So I think under his leadership, FDA might be at least more conducive to having this discussion. I also think most recently, just last month in December of uh, 2017, Sean, FDA, as you probably know, put out a, a, a new guidance on the least burdensome concept, and they introduced, uh, this is a topic of a different conversation, but an alternative to the 510K, it's essentially, it's an expansion of the abbreviated 510K program. But um, one could easily argue that creating a new uh, clearance or approval pathway specifically for biomaterials, not just biostable materials, but perhaps even bioabsorbable materials, uh, would fit under the least burdensome concept. So short answer to your question, Sean, is as far as I know, there have been no official conversations in this, uh, in this area, but Nonetheless, I think it's a great opportunity for us as an industry to, to get ahead of the story, so to speak, and to be much more proactive and take this to the agency in terms of a proposal and have a discussion about it. Oh, that's great. So when, when the Mike Drews Task Force on Biomaterials is being formed, we'll, uh, we'll reach out to the FPO audience and, uh, and seek their input and, and you know, their participation. Uh, well, thank you, Sean. I do appreciate the, the, the sentiment there, but let me be clear, although I'm happy to help, uh, you know, foster this because I do think it's in the benefit of everybody, the benefit of uh, industry, the benefit of the FDA, and most importantly, the benefit of our patients. Um, it does have to be a group effort. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. I know you mentioned, you know, this alternative pathway. Uh, no doubt that'll be a topic for an upcoming podcast, as well as the uh, recently uh, passed uh, uh, or put out there uh, 3D printing uh, additive manufacturing guidance. So we already have some great new topics uh, coming up for this for this year. But until those episodes, for Mike Drews, this has been Sean Fenske of MPO and uh, saying goodbye and we'll see you next time.